0: on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dan Schnitzer to the show. Dan is the CEO of Spark Meter, the leading provider of smart metering systems that enable utilities to implement prepaid billing and real-time monitoring and control on microgrids and central grids alike. He has served as a consultant to the United Nations Office for Project Services in Haiti and for the World Bank. From 2014 to 2015, he was the chair of the United Nations SE4 All Practitioner Network Microgrid Working Group, and he was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 for energy list in 2012. Dan, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Raj. How are you?
0: Dan, I'm doing fantastic and excited to speak to you. Where are you currently located?
1: Uh, I'm based in Washington, D.C. And how about you?
0: I am in Dallas, Texas. How's the weather in Washington?
1: Uh, it. We had a beautiful 75-degree day yesterday. It's gotten a little chilly and windy since then, uh, but, but still can't complain.
0: And... Is the cherry blossom season already over?
1: Yeah, came and went. Came and went pretty early this year.
0: You know, we had a a spring blink of an eye, and then last week we had some really chilly temperatures. Even this week it has been the 60s, so it's interesting to watch these weather patterns.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I mean, things are certainly coming into bloom right now. It's been delightful seeing the the leaves budding on the trees over the last few weeks, and so we're, we're getting to full bloom across everything here.
0: It sounds lovely. So, Dan, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be?
1: Something interesting. I guess um, it's it's quite possibly that uh, if it hadn't been for my interest in energy, um, which I, I really got into energy and environmental policy as a result of my 8th grade science fair project, Um, so I've been an an energy nerd for over 20 years, Um, I probably would have uh, ended up um, going to culinary school. Um, I was was seriously contemplating uh, in college uh, becoming a chef um, as as a career. And and I worked my senior year um, at a French restaurant in Chicago called La Petite Folie and had a great time and I learned a ton. And one of the things that I learned was that maybe the the lifestyle of being a chef um, wasn't quite something I wanted to sign up for, but was still something that I would maintain as a, a passionate hobby.
0: So I guess food is also some kind of energy,
1: right? It certainly is. Yeah, as a great class that I took in college was called The Hungry Planet, um, which is all about. The uh, you know different transfers and transformations of energy, including in our food system.
0: And what was your eighth grade project? Uh,
1: My eighth grade science fair project: I fermented apple peels, um, and then I made a a a stovetop still using my grandma's (laughs) pressure cooker, some plastic tubing, and a coffee can, and I triple distilled my fermented mash of apple peels into pure uh ethanol or you know nearly pure ethanol and then i burned my ethanol in a kerosene lamp and i compared it to a couple of fossil fuels including kerosene um and i i something clicked where i saw that you know my homemade fuel um created this this flame you know created uh, energy um, just as well as these industrial fossil fuels. And I knew at that time um, that that fossil fuels were were problematic and and things about the way that we produced and consumed our energy um, were bad for the planet, were harmful to human health, um, and that there was some intrinsic um, problems with with our systems of energy. And so there was just something that clicked and I had this, this realization of you know, wait a minute i'm i'm a child and I just made this perfectly good fuel out of apple peels which you know could be considered uh, a waste product of some some process um so you know this is what I maybe want to spend my life working on
0: that is amazing and for a moment there I thought you were going to go in another direction when you mentioned the still but then I realized that you weren't interviewing me and I won't share my story about making homemade wine and then drinking it
1: <laughs> well yeah I, I would be interested in, in hearing about that sometime.
0: <laughs> around the same age i think i was what 12 13 14 years old one of our um, science teachers decided to teach us how to make homemade wine and so i grew up in london we had this perfect harry potter closet under the stairs uh, dark da- dark and damp and made the homemade wine my parents didn't know i put it under there i think for a week or two fermented and they didn't even know i drank it at the time but um Cause a terrible headache. Let me tell you that.
1: Wow. Okay. So you did the the fermentation into wine, but you didn't then distill it into brandy.
0: Yeah, I was just looking to drink it.
1: Got it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's an interesting start, and it leads me to my next question regarding SparkMeter. Can you give the audience an overview of SparkMeter and your role at the organization?
1: Sure. Yes, I'm I'm one of the co-founders, uh, and I'm I'm the CEO. Um, and Sparkmeter is a company that sells smart electricity meters and and software to utilities in developing countries and emerging markets. Um, and, and basically, um, the the way that we got started, um, which w- would you like me to get into kind of the, the origin story of Sparkmeter or more what we do?
0: I would love to hear the origin story.
1: Okay, so... Um, it goes back to when I was um, working in Haiti. Um, so I, I started a nonprofit organization called EarthSpark International uh, about 10 years ago, or I guess more than that now. Um, and EarthSpark uh, was founded to, to really work on energy access um, and, and providing models, um, financial uh, tools um, for people to be able to get access to solar um, solar home systems and, and solar powered lamps. Um, and we then had the opportunity to work with a town called Les Anglais to build a full microgrid. Um, so the, the electricity infrastructure in Haiti, like in many um, developing countries, um, especially those in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, have very limited infrastructure when it comes to uh, the, the electrical, uh, the power system in infrastructure. Um, doesn't really exist outside of the largest cities. So there are dozens of towns in Haiti um, that have no electrical infrastructure whatsoever. And so we we had the opportunity to work with this town to set up a microgrid and, and essentially put in poles and wires and build a solar generation system to provide the entire town with 24-hour um, clean electricity from, from a solar generation system. Uh, and so we were able to secure some funding from, uh, donors, including USAID and National Geographic. Um, and we, we built the first solar powered microgrid in Haiti, uh, and this was now several years ago. Um, and we, we worked very closely with the government of Haiti on putting in the right policy and regulatory framework to enable us to do that legally. Um, or you know, at least give the, the right level of visibility to the government, um, and I think that that's something I'm I'm particularly proud of us doing, um, and it's something that you know, I've seen many many failed quote unquote development projects in developing countries where some people with good intentions go to a village or to a town with you know people who have you know dire needs, um, and then they just kind of go in and they put in a project. And then they leave and then, you know, within a a year or two or or maybe longer, um, at some point the project fails. Um, I know I'm kind of going on a a tangent here, but this idea of participatory development. um, So this idea of bringing in people as stakeholders, you know, the beneficiaries as stakeholders to design the project and design the program. um, And then to also bring in the government and make sure that you're working in within the policy and regulatory framework of the government is, I think, something that is crucial and is really what separates someone from simply having good intentions um, to someone who actually wants to produce um, systemic change. Um, and that's really what we set out to do. So we we successfully um, built this microgrid, and along the way, my business partner um, Allison Archambault and I we both had backgrounds in the U.S. electric utility sector and realize from the get-go that for this microgrid to work, we would need a smart metering system, but that the smart meters that are used by utilities in the United States and in Western Europe really were part of this system, which is called AMI, or Advanced Metering Infrastructure, which is not designed to scale down. You know, No, no uh, provider of smart metering technology uh, that sells to utilities in the US or Europe is going to talk to you uh, if you're building a microgrid for 500 households, it's just not how their system works. So we set out to take our own approach to doing smart metering. That's much more of, of an IoT, Internet of Things approach to the problem rather than what AMI is, uh, which is really IT, uh, you know, information technology. And I, I like to refer to AMI sometimes as a pre-iPhone technology, uh, which it really is. And that's why you have big companies like Deloitte and Accenture and IBM that work with very large utilities that are serving hundreds of thousands or even millions of customers like PG&E and Con Ed uh, to do these AMI smart metering projects. And obviously, that model of smart metering isn't going to work if you're a utility that has a small number of customers or is serving low-income customers or where you as a utility don't really have a lot of internal IT capability and uh, and and resources, and so that's why we we took this different direction. And we had this realization as we were developing the technology, and that's where I brought in my co-founders was that oh this this actually has broader applicability beyond our little project in Haiti, um, and, and this could be something that we could spin off as its own company and actually sell this this product to uh, utilities in in other parts of the world that have similar characteristics.
0: So in my research, I believe I came across, I think it was a video, where you mentioned meters actually being one of the hurdles for electricity providers of getting power to these small communities. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the meters are are certainly part of it, um, but the meters really need to serve some kind of of a business function or operational function for the utility. But yeah, you, you certainly do need some way of being able to charge your customers for the electricity that they're using. You know, One uh, issue that I had come across when I was doing my research in grad school, uh, which we, we ended up writing a report that the UN Foundation uh, published several years ago on case studies and best practices of microgrids in developing countries. and And one sort of poor practice that we found was that some of these microgrid operators microgrid utilities were simply charging their customers a a fixed fee every month based on how many rooms they had in their house or how many light bulbs were in their house and so it ends up happening as you can have you know two households that are right next door to each other um, that kind of look the same but you know one might be using 10 times more electricity than the other and yet they're receiving the same electricity bill every month because there's no way of measuring the electricity that's being used. And so you, you, you run into all sorts of challenges around how to charge your customers uh, and then also how to, how to collect payment when you have that sort of model. So what then happens if you go to a customer at the end of the billing period, um, which might be monthly or every three months, and the customer says, I, I can't pay? You know, Do you physically remove their connection? you give some sort of a grace period? And at the end of the day, what ends up happening is a lot of these microgrids end up failing uh, because they're not able to collect enough money for them to be able to continue to operate the service. Um, and that's the last thing that anybody wants to see happen because now you've effectively just wasted a bunch of resources. Like, wh- why, why build this microgrid to begin with if you're not able to operate it sustainably for the next 10 to, to 20 years? Um, And and unfortunately, that's what we uh, found was happening in in, uh, several different geographies. So the utility needs to be able to collect payments to be able to continue operating, even if it's a nonprofit, even if it's run by an NGO. And so that's really where, at at a a very basic level, um, metering, especially prepaid metering, um, or or, as as we've taken to call it, pay-as-you-go metering really helps. Um, There's a great paper, uh, economics paper, called The Economic Lives of the Poor by Duflo and and Banerjee that was published quite a a few years ago. And Duflo, at least, and maybe also Banerjee uh, received the Nobel Prize in economics very recently um, for their work on on characterizing um, economic livelihoods, uh, especially among the the world's poor and the approaches that they take to that, the sort of evidence-based approaches that they take to that. And that paper, I think, does a great job of characterizing uh, the sort of lumpiness of the income of, uh, of, of many of the world's poor who would benefit from better energy access. And that really highlights the role of pay-as-you-go, where if during a particular time of year, you're sort of in the money, you know maybe if you're in the agricultural sector, it's harvest season, so you have money, so you can put a bunch of money into your pay-as-you-go account. And that way, you can continue to use electricity And then in another part of the year, when you aren't uh, as liquid and you don't have cash, um, you can put in less into your account, or maybe you're able to, you know, tide over from what you put in in your account earlier in the year. Um, So pay as you go ends up being this extremely useful uh, technology or or a useful principle that's enabled by technology compared to just showing up at the person's house once a month and saying, okay, you owe me this much.
0: So it's a very interesting model. If I'm understanding correctly, can the consumer log into the meter using their cell phone and currently see their usage and pay over their cell phone? Is that how it works?
1: Um, So they, yeah, they don't really have to interact with the meter at all. Um, And I think that this is a big difference between our technology and the existing paradigm of prepaid meters that are on the market Um, with the prepaid meters that have been on the market now for, decades, uh, the user needs to in some way physically interact with the meter. Um, the kind of most contemporary version of that technology is where they go to a vendor, they get a scratch card. the scratch card has a, a string of, of numbers on it called a token, and then they have to go to their meter and they have to physically punch that token into their meter to then you know, get get their usage. With our system, it, it's tokenless. You don't need a scratch card. You can go to a vendor and you can make a cash payment, and then the vendor can use uh, basically the Spark Meter app on the vendor's phone, where the vendor has pre-purchased wholesale electricity credits from the utility that they can now sell at a retail markup to the, the retail customers. And so it's all done through the app. And then once that transaction clears, then that would uh, hit the customer's account and now that customer's account is just automatically wirelessly topped up. Um, so that's one mode. Another mode is with mobile money, where if the utility itself has a mobile money account, they can do a backend integration with our software where the customer can just send a mobile mobile money payment to the utility's mobile money account. And then once that transaction clears, that would then top up the customer's account. And now again, you know, completely wirelessly and pretty much instantaneously the user now is able to to have credit in their account and, and has electricity in their meter so so it's a very uh the, the, we've designed the system to be as easy to use and as agnostic towards payment types as possible
0: so an example of mobile money would be like M-Pesa in Kenya exactly how did you get into the IoT world
1: um, so so this is really uh where we you know, felt that we were differentiated as a technology compared to the existing paradigm of smart metering, um, AMI or advanced metering infrastructure, is that we really do take more of an energy IoT approach to the technology. Uh, and I'd say that that was pretty heavily informed by where I did my my PhD, um, which was Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And so it was through Carnegie Mellon and, and my graduate studies that uh, I got connected to uh, Anthony Rowe, uh, who's one of our co-founders, and he's a professor of electrical computer engineering there. And he, you know, we brought him in to work with us on creating a more flexible wireless mesh network um, system and a system that would be more robust and resilient to um, areas where the power and the internet. Is intermittent and uh, and low bandwidth. Uh, you know, obviously, on, on the internet being low bandwidth. You know, the the IT systems that AMI is predicated on in this sort of pre pre iPhone technology is where you you essentially have a flawless IT implementation. You know, that's why your utility has an IT department. Uh, you have contractors um, from Deloitte or from Accenture, from other IT contracting firms. You have a whole ecosystem of vendors. You've got, you know, Dell providing you or HP providing you with hardware. Uh, you've got Oracle providing you with databases. Uh, you have other vendors who are providing you with networking equipment and networking expertise. And you know everything is you're really rigorously planned, Costs of fortune, but it's executed and it has extremely high levels of reliability um, in terms of you know, bringing the data. From the meters to to the utilities on site servers. Now, nothing about that makes sense when you're talking about an environment uh, in Haiti or in India or in lots of parts of sub Saharan Africa, where you know the internet uh, might be non uh, virtually non existent. You know, it might be edge cellular networks um, out in the rural areas, and where the availability of electricity is is also intermittent. So. The the systems um, for AMI are not going to be able to be uh, used in in that instance, and that's where IoT and pushing out more of the intelligence of the system to the edge. Right, these these IoT devices themselves are quite smart; they have a lot of intelligence to them. Right, that's what makes the Nest thermostat, or you know, an, an Amazon um, Echo, you know, one of their Alexa devices, uh, or any of these sort of smart sensors. That we're now putting into our homes, what makes them, you know, the, the sort of a, a characteristic that makes them these IoT devices is this idea of edge computing. We put We're putting a lot of intelligence on the device itself. So we took the approach that rather than putting the intelligence into the network or into what's on the server, to put the intelligence into the meters themselves, and then also into the device that the meters communicate to, Um, which we are are starting to call a grid edge management unit. Um, And that grid edge management unit is really an energy IoT device that communicates locally with the meters over our wireless mesh network. And then it has a lot of intelligence. One of the things that it does, for example, is it caches all of the data that it's collecting from the meters. And it's caching that so that even if there's an interruption to the internet connection, Um, to go up to the cloud, that it can can cache that data locally on the device for days, weeks, or even months at a time. And then when that internet connection is reestablished, it can populate the cloud database with the data that didn't make it up there, sort of the way that Dropbox might work on, on your computer to manage your files.
0: I'm smiling because it's all about batch processing.
1: Yeah, it's very much about about batch processing. It's about you know the system being able to to operate independently of the operator. Um, and so with these AMI systems, the focus is really on the the kind of human operator uh, at the utility who might need to send a manual command to retrieve certain data from the meters. Um, whereas we you know are taking more of this approach of well, we basically have unlimited database storage in the cloud. Um, We have this very now very powerful edge computing device, our grid edge management unit. So let's just process everything independently and make the data available in the cloud whenever the the user wants to do something with that data.
0: And the market you mentioned, Sub-Saharan Africa, India, they've leapfrog the whole wires and they've gone directly to broadband, sorry, cell service, 3G, 4G, 5G. So I'm guessing you're able to leverage those rather than have to depend on traditional wire systems.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, we're really agnostic to the internet backhaul. Um, if there is an ISP, that's great. If it's cellular, that's fine. If it's satellite, that's fine. You know, maybe next year some of our customers will will be on uh, on SpaceX's Starlink uh, <laughs> internet connection. So we really don't care about the internet connection. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. The thing that we are leapfrogging is we're going straight to IoT, and we're kind of skipping this IT step. Right there, the the benefit of our system is that there really isn't any traditional IT and networking that the utility needs to do, and that's because our meters with the grid edge management unit come with their own mesh network that's plug and play. So there's no configuration, there's no networking. The utility installs the meters, they install the management unit, they turn it on and it immediately just starts communicating. And then the other big shift for the utility industry that we're pushing on is instead of having, you know, in-house servers and databases that you have to maintain and IT systems that are running those databases and are integrated with their other systems, it's all software as a service and it's all in the cloud. And it's super easy to just create new instances when necessary. It's super easy to use standard, uh, well-documented APIs to get the data out and to put it into other systems. Um, and that's you know, much more of this IoT kind of approach instead of that traditional networking IT approach.
0: Now, you've made it sound very simple, but I know from being involved in tech, hardware is hard. How difficult was it to get to this point?
1: Uh, it, it was really difficult. Um, you know, we we were also starting at a time several years ago when the cost of the smart metering hardware itself was still pretty expensive, when it, it wasn't unusual for a smart meter to to be in the, the realm of, of $200 per unit. And so a really interesting evolution that we saw happen. Um, and so, so as a result, was was we designed our own smart meter from the bottom up to be a lower cost smart meter. And that's where we originally thought we were going to get a lot of our um, advantage, what was cost advantage compared to other smart meters on the market. And then a really interesting thing happened, um, which was that, you know, kind of suddenly uh, companies in China began producing um, smart meters almost as like a commodity where they really just kind of converged on a standard, fairly standard, fairly common design across the manufacturers of a, a smart meter base that could then sort of plug into different communications modules. And so that, that's where around that time, not surprisingly, GE actually sold off its meter manufacturing business. And there were some other transactions in the space uh, as well with, with companies that were making meters. And there was this sort of realization that you actually might not end up making money on selling the smart meter um, because this, this uh, cost pressure from China um, is, is pushing down the, the prices. And instead, the focus really became more on the services and the software. And so our evolution on the, the hardware side has really come full circle where we are actually no longer manufacturing our own meter design, or even our own communications module design. We've now completely really outsourced that to a a Chinese company that makes smart meter bases at a much lower cost than we were able to. Uh, And then we're also working with a Korean company that manufactures radio modules And so it's still all our software that's running on the radio module, but where we really went to these specialists in terms of the manufacturing, and and we've we've now integrated with those hardware platforms. The um, grid edge management unit is a piece of hardware that we have designed, and and is where we do own that unit in terms of the design. We originally um, had outsourced the base station while we are using our own in-house designed uh, metering hardware. And so we've now switched. Um, and the reason for that is because we, we do want something that's much more customized and streamlined and provides greater value. And we felt that we could do that by designing our own uh, grid edge management unit instead of outsourcing that to off-the-shelf hardware.
0: And just for the benefit of those listening along, how long did it take you to go from prototype to production?
1: Uh, That was probably the first two years of the company's existence um, was going from uh, prototyping and R and D to uh, when we were first able to sell our meters and have them used by uh, a small number of customers.
0: And I'm really fascinated with the model, so I'm going to stay on this for a moment. You mentioned earlier partnering with vendors. Can you explain what a vendor that's selling the I'm going to guess say power. What does that person look like? What does that organization look like?
1: So I think you're referring to our customers.
0: Um, you said that the consumer goes and purchases it from a vendor. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so so our customer is a a utility, and the way that they sell electricity to their end users is entirely up to them. A lot of utilities have vendors who are sort of this middleman between the utility and the end user, and it's that vendor that the end user, the end users are actually buying their electricity from. Um, so in some cases, this might be a small shop in, in a, a rural village. In other cases, this might be a big company that has a franchise where that utility is giving the franchise rights to that company to sell electricity credits to the end users. And in other cases, it might be the utility itself, where the utility is directly receiving payments from its customers to to provide them with electricity. So the the point that I was making about our software platform is that we're really agnostic to the business model and the modes of payment that the utility, uh, that particular utility is using to receive payment from their customers.
0: And I'm asking because, again, it reminds me of back in London. There was a time where you could actually go to the post office or a local convenience store to pay an electric bill or a gas bill.
1: That's right. Yeah, and and still for some of our customers, um, there is that that middleman between the the utility and the end users. Um, and and if that's the case, that's that's totally fine. Our our system can uh, can accommodate that.
0: How does the utility benefit from the data it collects from the end users?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is where um, we certainly want to build capability at, at Spark meter to deliver a lot more value to the utility outside of this domain of payments and and metering and billing. And that's super important aspect of the utility's operations. I think it's where we've really focused the last few years. But the promise of smart metering, is that the utility can leverage the data from the meters to say, um, you know, oh, I'm, I have an outage on this part of my grid, right? And, and think about in, in the days when we didn't have smart meters that were communicating data, how would the utility find out about outages? It might be very manual. It might be their customers are, are calling them to tell them that they don't have an outage, or it might be that the utility has some real-time sensors on its network um, but they have a rel- you know, way, way smaller number of those sensors at parts of their network that are much sort of higher up in the in the transmission distribution system. Uh, and they don't have a sensor in every single customer household. So if one of those sensors were saying, you know, this part of the network doesn't have power, you know does w- what does that mean? Or if all those sensors are saying, everything's good, we all have power, but the issue is further down the network. And there are some customers that don't have power. How does the utility find that out? Um, and so that that's where smart meters can essentially act as sensors and provide the utility with this data and this this information, this context that has nothing to do with what we traditionally think of as belonging to the domain of metering for billing and payment. Um, and so that's what we're really striving to do is to take the data and to, to produce analytics that might tell the utility... You know, you're based on these voltages. We're seeing this much voltage drop on this line, and when you have voltage drop on a line, there's actually a cost there. It, it, you're actually burning more electricity um, than than what you would ideally want to be losing to losses. Or we might be able to tell the utility that based on the aggregated load from a partic- particular transformer, that the load on that transformer is over the capacity of the transformer. And if you keep on loading your transformer this way, you might reduce the lifetime of that transformer by five years. Um, And so you're going to have to replace it early and, and that's more expensive for the utility. So there's all sorts of additional analytics that you can produce for the utility using that data. And I think that what we've seen happen in the United States with its experience with smart metering and AMI is that you don't necessarily get those benefits unless certain things are true. And to, to go off on sort of another tangent for a minute, I think what, what was really interesting about the experience with smart metering in the U.S. is, is that the 2008 financial crisis resulted in the, the ARA, the American Re- Recovery and, and Reinvestment Act, and that authorized billions of dollars of, of grants under the, the DOE's smart grid investment um, and grant program, for utilities and and a lot of those grants were, were actually used to buy smart metering ami systems but those those many of those utilities never went the step beyond just using smart meters for billing and so we now are over 10 years later after those smart metering procurements and these utilities still aren't using the data to go into outage management or managing their distribution systems, or improving their planning processes. Because in many cases, they're not even pulling back data from the meters other than just the energy data, which is what you just need for a bill. You just need to know kilowatt hours. So they might not even be pulling back the voltage or the current or power quality data in some cases because they might not even have a database. And this is especially for these smaller utilities in the United States, of which there are there are many, where they, like utilities in developing countries that we're serving, they don't have a big IT department, or they can't afford to spend a million dollars on Oracle or, or Accenture or Deloitte to come in and get them set up. Um, and so there's been, I think, this real tragedy of AMI in the United States in that it hasn't really provided a lot of value to these utilities outside of billing. And that's, I think, something that we're looking to kind of fix. Um, and we're looking to make sure that if you're a customer of ours and using our smart metering system, that we're providing you with software out of the box that's giving you additional value into these other operating uh, areas of your of your utility.
0: It sounds like a huge opportunity.
1: Yeah, it definitely is, Um, and we're having some really interesting conversations, even in the United States, about how we might be able to uh, at least take the software part of what we've built and work with utilities, especially small utilities in the U.S. If if you're a utility serving fewer than 250,000 customers, there are a lot of um, technology companies, vendors, um, especially these IT systems providers that might not even be interested in working with you because you're too small. And that's because they're in the business of selling IT services contracts, whereas we want to be in the business of selling on a software as a service cloud platform basis to as many accounts as possible. And if that means going to small utilities uh, that are serving fewer than 250,000 customers, but they've got smart meters installed, that that looks like a great opportunity for us.
0: Do you do this? So, I want to get to the crux of our conversation. You mentioned a few things earlier. You mentioned your eighth grade science experiment. Then you also mentioned working in Haiti, and now the work that you're doing in India, Sub-Saharan Africa. I see a thread there. And what's the why? Like, how do these things come together?
1: Um, I, I think where the where these things kind of come together is is just kind of um, an interest in you know certainly personally in in my work having meaning you know, i i think and that's really a unifying characteristic of all of the people who work at sparkmeter um, i think any one of us could go and work for a different company and probably get paid more <laughs> and 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 for some people you know that's that's the interest is maybe you know working on a super challenging technical problem um, or working somewhere where you have really, you know, high upside financially. Um, and I think that what unifies the people at SparkMeter and certainly for me personally, um, is that this is really about doing work that's going to have an impact in people's lives in an area that, you know, is, is definitely of great personal interest to me. Um, you know, you can have impact working on water or sanitation issues or, or agriculture issues or, or health issues. That's certainly true. I think for me personally, uh, I just kind of have um, an intrinsic interest in energy, uh, something I've, I've been passionate about for a long time, um, and seeing energy as this enabler of opportunity and energy really being, if I have access to clean, reliable, um, electricity in particular, that means that I am going to be much more empowered and have many more opportunities as an individual on the planet than if, if I didn't. And so I think that the, that there is that thread of viewing energy as this vehicle for delivering opportunity and, and freedom for people around the world.
0: Why is it important to you to have work with meaning?
1: Um I think that that probably just just came from um, my upbringing and, and in particular, in particular from my my mom. And I remember from a, a pretty young age, my mom uh, essentially teaching me about privilege. Um, and, and that wasn't the hot word that it is today. Um, but I have pretty distinct memories of, of my mom telling me things when I was like, you know, six or seven. Um, that I was lucky to have been born in the United States to a family where we really didn't have to worry about being hungry and we didn't have to worry about um, having you know our, our necessities met and where we had nice things and we could go on vacation and that was um, you know not something that that many people in the world did have and so I think that was something that, my mom really reinforced, uh, in me, uh, and also where she kind of created, uh, an explicit sense of expectation that I could basically do anything I wanted to, uh, as long as it helped people.
0: I love that. It sounds like your mom was a lady way ahead of her time.
1: Yeah, I I think she, she certainly is.
0: Well, you've been on this journey for a while now. What's the most valuable lesson you would say you've learned about yourself?
1: Um, I think probably something having to do with resilience uh, we we've gone through a lot of challenging and trying times. Um, I've had a, a couple of, of my advisors uh, say that that at some point I should write a book uh, about the experience uh, because of some of the things that we've had to go through and i I think that that's probably not foreign to uh, founders and leaders of companies that are, backed by venture capital and are trying to have uh, an impact in their work and, and that they aren't just building, um, you know, an app, um, out of, you know, wherever Silicon Valley or, or New York, and they're building an app as like something consumer facing for them to make a ton of money, um, that there's really this, this other motivating factor behind their work. And that can create, um, some degree of tension when, when you do have that mission, Focus to your company, um, but you're also bringing in, you know, essentially venture capital. So, you know, I think that there's been certainly an, an interest from investors in financing uh, uh, impact, uh, which is great, and and our investors certainly view that as as being part of their investment mandate. But I, I've certainly found that this this isn't the easiest road uh, to have taken. Um, but that there's been some great learnings about myself in terms of where I can pull from to to be resilient and to continue to lead the company through challenging times.
0: Well, speaking of leading the company, let's move into the future. It's 2030, magic wand. What does the future hold for Sparkmeter?
1: Uh, so I think that the, if everything goes as in the kind of most optimistic <laughs> Um, development with energy access, uh, 2030 is really the, the target for global universal access to electricity. So I think the, the hope is that by 2030, um, all of the roughly um, 1 billion people, I think that the number might be closer to 800 and 900 million people um, currently who don't have access to electricity whatsoever that, that would not be the case in in, in in the next nine to 10 years. And, and by 2030, there's universal access. Um, I, I haven't been, stayed super, super current on the modeling efforts, but as of a few years ago, the expectation is that the most economical means of connecting the roughly 1 billion people um, who don't have electricity whatsoever to electricity would be kind of roughly divided uh, equally between extending a, a an existing grid, solar home systems, small-scale distributed solar home systems uh, that you know, provide a relatively small amount of electricity for, for basic needs like lighting, and then the remaining third through microgrids. And so if we take, you know, let's say that would be you know, 500 or 600 million people uh, who would be connected either to a grid that gets extended or to a new microgrid, uh, you're talking about something on the order of 100 million new grid connections uh, over the next 10 years, right? 10 10 million connections per year. And we're hoping that about half of those, at least, will come from microgrids, which is really exciting. Um, I reckon, and I don't have a great source for this, that there are probably about 1 million microgrid connections today. It's worth noting that Sparkmeter we've sold over 150,000 meters to date mostly to the microgrid sector so we have a very high market share today of existing microgrid connections. So my hope is that we go from a million connections today where Sparkmeter has a relatively high market share to 100 million connections, you know maybe maybe it's 50 million connections on microgrids in the next 10 years. So 50x market size increase um and if we can maintain our current levels of of market share uh where in 10 years uh you know we have well over five or 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 even 10 million uh of those microgrid connections are being served through uh spark meter systems. So I think that's that's one aspect of, of aspiration. The other one is in DERs, distributed energy resources being used as virtual power plants for the grid. Um, you know, I think everybody in the U.S. is pretty well aware and on the same page that for virtual power plants you know, and, and DERs to be used in, in a coordinated way through DERMs platforms, you know, distributed energy resource management system platforms, that we need to have a much smarter grid. Um, our hope is that our technology is what enables that smarter grid especially at the edge of the grid for utilities in emerging markets and developing countries. Smart meters should be the cornerstone of that. And I think that that's the system that we're building today is we provide utilities with a smart metering system. And then we use that data at, combined with information about the utility system to produce grid analytics And then the grid analytics would help inform a strategy for DERs to potentially be used as virtual power plants at the grid edge, because the grid analytics would tell you exactly at what location, what amount, and at what price grid services from those distributed resources would provide value to the grid and to the customer. So I think that's the other in 10 years part of the equation is that Spark Meter is not just selling meters. Um, but we're doing really full utility digitalization through grid analytics and enabling new business models like virtual power plants.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing both of those aspirations come to fruition. Earlier in the conversation, when I asked you about things you learned on your journey, you mentioned tenacity, which is advice also. But last question is, if you could share some specific advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be?
1: I think there's a lot. I think I've uh... And, and the reason why there's a lot is, is maybe this sort of comes back to uh, what's worked for me, uh, which is surround yourself uh, with great mentors and put yourself in a position of learning and acknowledging uh, through humility uh, how little you know and how much you could potentially learn from someone um, or learn even in circumstances that might seem familiar, uh, but maybe you're missing something. Maybe there's still something more that you can learn even from uh, familiar circumstances. But I think that the, the most important thing is think about who your heroes are, if you have any heroes, whether any of those people could be your mentors, and pursue them. Uh, but, but really, I, I think it, it comes back to Find mentors. Find people who you look up to and and who you you know, believe have you know sort of values that that you aspire to have or have achieved things that you aspire to achieve and see what you can learn from them.
0: You know, I think the idea of going out and finding mentors, identifying mentors, is often overlooked. People get intimidated, but I, I appreciate that advice. I think I think more people should actively pursue, like you said, the people they admire and see you know how they can become part of that you mentioned group of people or tribe of people they can surround themselves with yeah exactly dan i really appreciate your time today and i look forward to the continued success of spark meter and catching up with you again soon
1: sounds great thanks for taking the time
0: thank you dan thank you for listening if you like our show please give us a rating and review on itunes and you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com, or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the cleantech, green tech sectors. Bigger than us is a Nexus PMG production.